Hello and welcome once again to episode 90 of Code Completion. We are a group of iOS developers and educators hoping to share what we love most about development, Apple technology, and completing your code. My name is Dimitri and I'll be your host once again for this episode and I'm joined today by my fellow completionist, Spencer. Hey there. So during WWDC, Apple mentioned something quite surprising, uh, that Swift was now being used uh, directly within the secure Enclave, which is a coprocessor, um, which is not necessarily running a full OS. Uh, so that was uh, quite the revelation that they were able to bring uh, Swift to this very different environment. Uh, so we thought we might discuss how Swift can be used outside of apps. Um, and Spencer, this was a topic that you you brought up because there's quite a few examples that you've tried already um, mm-hmm. outside of apps. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean... Of course, and <laughs> this is this is uh, Spencer like hoisting his uh, flag of of proudly uh, supporting Vapor. Uh, that would definitely be the one that I've used the most. Where <clears throat> instead of Swift being on an app, uh, you know, iOS, macOS, whatever, uh, it's on a server. It's running on a Linux server somewhere. Or I suppose you could you know run the same thing on a Mac Mini, but most probably it's going to be. Uh, if you're hosting this on like Heroku or something, it's probably going to be running like Ubuntu or something. Um, and so that's, I, I love that Swift is open source and people have made it available and workable on non Apple hardware so that we can take advantage of things like Swift on the server and kind of have, you know, let, at least for me, the way that I view it is like, let iOS developers and macOS developers kind of branch out outside of the Apple ecosystem in a way that is friendly to them and they don't have to learn another language uh, mm-hmm. and they don't have to kind of, uh, y- you know, learn all of these different paradigms that come with a different language where um, when I'm writing a Vapor app, it's... I'm using structs and I'm using classes and, you know, it's, it's object oriented and it's in a way that, uh, feels very natural to me, uh, because I'm using the same language that I already know. And, you know, there are, it's a new API. And so, you know, just like when you dive into a new framework that is first party from Apple, there's a learning curve there, but ultimately the language itself isn't sort of a barrier to entry to, in order to kind of get yourself to a certain point in order to even understand what you're doing. Uh, It's Mm -hmm. more of like looking at API documentation and trying to figure out how things work, looking at examples and all that. And that uh, again, just lowers the barrier to entry. Even foundation Um, is, is available, right? So like just basic things like opening a file, um, mm -hmm. like can be identical to the way you've done them. There are, there are more efficient ways of doing them, uh, because it's a very different context and you might want to do different things with those files. But if all you want is to open an image file to do something with it, heck, you can go ahead and do that. You might not have UI or NS image available to you, though if you're on the Mac, you you absolutely do, right? right. That's just available magically. But if you're running Swift not on a Mac as a server but on something else, then you have to like find some a different way of uh, working with stuff. Uh, but a lot of the basics are are there like messing around with paths those are just urls Mm -hmm. um opening files that's just loading data data right it's it's very straightforward 
um, in many of those ways. Um, so I guess let's let's dive into Swift on the server as like our first tent pole yeah. of of uh, <laughs> all of these. Um, and what exactly is Vapor? Like, is it something you download? Is it a package that you uh, brew install? Like, what's going on with that? Uh, yeah, good. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, <clears throat> it's just a Swift package. So just like you could import some random, uh, you know, <laughs> my go-to would always be like some charting library. But now that we have Swift charts, that kind of goes out of the, uh, you know, that doesn't quite work anymore. But, you know, if you were going to import some third-party library uh, into your iOS or macOS app, you would use Swift Package Manager uh, in this day and age. Luckily, we're, again, CocoaPods were a bad dream. Um but it's just a Swift package, and so really all it is is just a bunch of Swift code that people have wrote and open source that's just on GitHub uh, in order for you to facilitate, uh, you know, making some server-side app that just kind of runs on a server, or again, you could just run it locally on your own Mac. Um, and it's just a command line tool, so it's just kind of sitting there in the background, and, you know, it's opened up a URL in order for you to access it. And then from there, Vapor lets you uh, create like endpoints. And so you could say like, you know, whatever your base URL is slash hello world. And then you could do a number of things. You could have it be sort of like a REST API where it could um, just return you some JSON uh, that you asked for. You could actually have it render out HTML for you or do a combination of both. And so most of the time, what I'm doing with Vapor is making just like a REST API, just sort of like a backend for some iOS app. Uh, but there are people that will, you know, build entire websites um, in in Vapor. And there's, um, it's, I think I talked about this a couple episodes ago, but it's it's really well, I think, broken up into like, there's kind of like the vapor core of just like the very basic fundamental kind of uh, functionality of vapor. But then there are uh, kind of different packages depending on what you want to do. So if you want to have uh, a SQLite library or a MySQL library or a Postgres uh, library, they're all kind of different or sorry, databases. They're all different uh, third party libraries, Swift packages that you can import uh, but they've also got like a templating engine to let you uh, write HTML and kind of have that interact with your actual Swift code. Um, so yeah, it, it's kind of all broken up. And that's essentially what Vapor is, is just a command line tool with kind of, you know, these extensions, these kind of auxiliary uh, functionalities that you can import as well as packages uh, in order to make a website, make a, you know, REST API, whatever you want. It's just really swift code running on the server in in kind of its most basic form i suppose and i i think the coolest part of vapor just being a package that you can either write a command line tool which ends up being a quote-unquote server um or oh. you can import into an ios app and have your ios app just run a server that other things can connect to like that's entirely possible because it's as you said just a package all you need mm -hmm. to do is import it um write up a few endpoints which uh, if if you've never heard the term endpoint before, it's kind of like uh, making a function available via a URL. Uh, mm -hmm. So if someone calls a URL, it's going to call your function that you associate with it. Um, if someone calls a different URL, then it's going to like default to a 404 not found 
uh, function that you can specify. Um, and Vapor takes care of all the intricacies of how, HTML, how HTTP works, uh, making and managing the connection for you. All you really need to do, managing threads and stuff like that, all you really need to do is say, hey, if I'm, if I'm accessed on this URL, let me know and I will do my thing and give you a yeah. response. And then like that's all I need to care about. Uh, the rest is all managed for you so long as you follow like a certain set of rules of non-blocking and things like that. But that's a lot easier now with uh, async await. Um, and it's surprisingly easy to just get started. So if you've ever used an API before, um, I highly, highly, highly recommend that you take a look at Vapor because it allows you to write the API that you've been using and you can potentially design it in a way that because it's Swift, you can just share all your models uh, between mm-hmm. the two, the two um, uh, rep- like source code repos because your app might have like a struct for, I don't know, uh, post. Uh, say sure. you say you show a list of posts, right? Uh, and you have a struct with a post. It has an ID. It has a user. It has uh, like a message and all sorts of things. What, however, you describe that. If it's codable, you can now share that struct between both sets of code, um, and then your server um, your server implementation can just go ahead and use that same exact struct. It can even import that same struct as like a sub package um, and just write it. And say like, hey, I'm going to make this struct and send it to you. You don't have to worry about writing the JSON or even encoding the JSON. Like from Vapor, that's all taken care of. On your app, you have to do more work to decode it, if that makes any uh, sense. So uh, yeah, Vapor is pretty damn awesome. Yeah, it's it's awesome. It's super cool. I Again, like Dimitri said, I highly recommend checking it out. Um, it's it, like, he, he kind of already said this, but... Vapor is to, to like, yeah, setting up connections and all that to what, um, you know, an app is. You aren't managing iOS in the background. All you're doing is like, what do you want it to do when the user taps on your app? And that's it. Um, makes it really easy. And like Dimitri said, async await, uh, await, await, await. <laughs> lowered, lowered the bench, the barrier to entry. Man, I can't talk this morning. Uh, a ton because you're not dealing with these things called event loop futures that come from Swift Neo, which I think we'll talk about here in a second, uh, which were just an absolute pain. Um, and now makes it very, very easy uh, to get started. Um, and one thing I want to mention is like, if you have your own app uh, that you maybe want to store some things on the server for on a server for like, uh, you're using Firebase or you're using CloudKit or something, uh, Vapor could very well be a another option for you. I wouldn't necessarily say replacement. I think there is, there's definitely a time and place, uh, especially for like CloudKit, you get easy uh, po- uh, yeah, push notifications and stuff. So there are like pros and cons of both, but it could very well be something that you could get running up, up and running very quickly again, because like Dimitri said, you can basically share your model objects and it's just a matter of like uh, taking the JSON that you get the codable struct and throwing it in a database just on a server as opposed to, you know, in core data or something probably take you more or less the same amount of time uh, after you sort of learn it. So super cool. And again, I will, I will gladly be the poster boy for vapor because it's just something that it's it's most definitely the most interesting kind of like third party library that I've ever used and one that um, 
I'm using regularly uh, for kind of side gigs and stuff, but it's also just like such a cool idea that you can kind of not have to rely on something crappy like Firebase in order to have, uh, you know, persistent data outside of your own app on a server somewhere. So uh, it's good stuff. Definitely 10 of 10 would recommend. And I, I, ju- I do want to also point out, like, if you are using Vapor to write a serious app, you're going to need to use a database of some sort, like mm-hmm. Postgres or MongoDB. Um, but you don't necessarily need to be an expert in those databases. Like, this can be your your uh, gateway to using those different kinds of databases, if, especially if you've never used them before. Uh, because totally. Vapor makes it very easy through an, an abstraction called Fluent. Uh, to tie model objects directly to database objects. Um, so that way you don't necessarily need to be writing queries by hand uh, in order to access stuff. You just use the API that's provided via that library and things g- generally would just work. Um, so I think there's a Postgres uh, fluent library. There's like Mongo Kitten, uh, which is one for MongoDB. Um, and there's like a variety of these different yeah. implementations that all kind of work similarly. Um, and I don't want to say that they're like hot swappable, uh, or anything because they definitely are not. The code will need to change between them. Uh, but they do offer similar abstractions. So you can try out multiple different ones, uh, to kind of see which one, uh, works best for your app and which one works best for you in terms of like understanding, uh, everything that's going on. So. Uh, definitely, definitely something to try out there uh, when it comes to Vapor. Yep, for sure. Um, and as Spencer mentioned, like Vapor and like these these database libraries, all of them are based on like a common foundation called Swift Neo. Um, and this is co- this stands for uh, I think it's non blocking uh, I/O, uh, yeah. not network I/O, uh, but non blocking I/O because it. it basically uh, needed to be conceived in a world where there wasn't Swift Async Await yet. Um, So it came up with an API that allows you access to a thread pool that will automatically manage itself. All you needed to do is chain a sequence of asynchronous events um, that would happen from input all the way to output. So if it told you, hey, you have an input uh, and it has this data, you decide what to do with that data and then when you're done, you pass it to the next thing that's responsible. Um, and that goes all the way to the output, which will send it back to wherever it came from, basically. Um, so you can set up all sorts of uh, things like channels where like, you can configure these, these inputs and outputs um, all the way down to not needing to deal with it at all. Like in Vapor's case, where you just get a request and you give back a response. Um, now, Swift Neo uses a very different paradigm, right, of uh, promises and futures. Uh, and we thankfully uh, are moving away from that. And I think they targeted Swift 6 as like the big uh, changeover where they're rewriting the API to not use uh, promises and futures at all anymore and then only use async await in the most optimal way possible. Is that correct? As far as I know, yeah. Um, I follow Vapor a lot more closely than I do sort of like the base libraries like Swift Neo, but I believe so, yeah. So if you ever wanted to write something more complex, like uh, an open TCP or UDP connection and you needed to like directly manage all that yourself, um, like Swift Neo is the thing to use. It's, it's highly performant. 
Um, it is highly optimized, uh, and it is absolutely used in like mission critical um, server uh, applications. So uh, definitely take a look at that if that's something you're interested in. Once again, that's something you can use in your macOS or iOS app as well uh-huh. um, if you did want to start accepting sockets and things like that. Um, on Apple's platforms, it is backed by Network Framework, which is uh, like Apple's uh, high-performance implementation of TCP and UDP. Uh, so you can go ahead and use that locally uh, via the same API that you would use on your server, which may be running on Linux, right? Um, which would be very, very different than, um, than, than what you're necessarily used to. So you don't need to deal with pipes and... Uh, sockets and threads it's all just taken care of and abstracted for you uh, which is what's really nice about swift neo yeah um i i remember reading this and i just pulled up the um the repository and i can't quite find it as i'm looking at it but um i'm gonna kind of paraphrase here but i think one of the kind of biggest um aims of swift neo was to make it kind of inherently support very well um, highly multi-threaded things. For example, going back to Vapor, where you could have thousands or tens of thousands of clients kind of hitting that sort of framework at the same time through a Vapor app or whatever, it can very efficiently manage, uh, you know, handling all of those requests to whatever it is, like uh, Dimitri was saying, Postgres or, or whatever it is. That's kind of that intermediary layer between the database and the rest of the code, uh, it's it's very much um, written in a way that can be uh, efficient at that. So that's kind of the goal, I suppose, of Swift Neo is to interface well in those kind of situations as well. Mm-hmm. Or and and it, and it's doing that because and it, it achieves that because it tries not to have things jump between threads, um, and it tries mm-hmm. to keep an event that came in on the same thread all the way through. But to not consume that thread. So if a request is coming in and it's currently coming in and you need to wait for it to come in to do something with it, your block is going to be run on that thread, but you're not going to be notified until like everything actually came in. And right. if it's waiting on the sender to still send stuff, it's going to potentially schedule other stuff on that thread in the meantime. Um, so it's it very efficiently... Uh, will schedule things on these different threads, um, which it calls event queues, kind of or run loops, basically. Um, and it allows it to very efficiently kind of coordinate that, much like async await does actually, because async await won't be switching threads either, even mm-hmm. though it has like actor isolation stuff. Like one actor uh, actually will do very, something very different. So it's it's kind of different from what I just said, uh, where one actor may run on very different threads uh, one after another, uh, and that's because whatever is requesting that work to be done, it's going to try to stay on the thread that's currently on. Um, just do it in an optimal way where the actor is freed up and stuff like that. So uh, it's kind of the same thing and kind of different. And currently, if you have Swift Neo and you have async await, you have two different thread pools that are being used. Mm. But the community decided that that is like a negligible well it's not negligible like the performance impact is still there but it's negligible in that the code that you're writing now with like these higher level frameworks like vapor where everything has been async awaitified 
uh, those benefits are far outweigh the loss in performance that you might have because it makes yeah. coding more robust and easier to deal with. Um, so as a as a community, the Swift on server like worker basically said, "Hey, use async await. Don't necessarily use <laughs> yeah. uh, like these features and these promise things from Swift Neo anymore. Like we we plan on getting rid of that with Swift six. Um, so as we march forward to Swift six and get all those guarantees of thread safety along the way, uh, we want you to all use async await so that way you're ready for that. Like you instantly get those benefits when we flip the switch, basically." Um, so that's what everyone's kind of marching forwards all together in concert. Um, and they're planning on making Swift 6 the language that will be optimal for this. Uh, so until then, we have this kind of duality of worlds. Um, but once we get there, I think it's going to be very, very nice indeed. Yeah, it's made all the difference in how fast I can write, um, vapor code and also uh how would i say it's like so much less frustrating even though i mean i've been using vapor since vapor 2 and we're on vapor 4 it's been like four years or so um but man futures are just something that you never really enjoy dealing with and we talked about this last week with uh new additions to swift where it's better at um inferring like <laughs> the return types, types the return types and like that's a huge thing with Vapor where you've got all of these, the the futures end up, you, you have this future that's kind of an optional-ish. Like, you'll get a closure and it'll run when it's available, but it's not guaranteed to be available at that exact time when the code first runs. And so it's just kind of this closure sitting there and eventually it runs. But uh, if you're returning something through a bunch of these closures that you've kind of, these, these future closures... Uh, Swift is like I don't know what this is. Let's <laughs> let's have you do it, a programmer, because you're smart, right? And I'm like, no, just figure it out, please. And it doesn't. So um, and you end up with these chains of like four yeah. or five maps on top of each other, and it's other. just dot nested. flat map, dot flat map, dot flat map. Um, so you can either have it be a nested pyramid of doom, which is bad, and like the whole community will try to teach you how to not think that way because you have yeah. to change the way you're thinking if you don't want to think that way um or you have this very nice structure that if you look at it wrong it will break mm-hmm. <laughs> which is because it it has to infer what the return type is for each one of those blocks and that return type becomes the argument type for the next one so if one thing is off uh the whole thing breaks down um and if there's like one ambiguous piece, if one third party library adds like an overload that you were not expecting, that can mess the whole thing up because now you have an ambiguity and you have either an as somewhere or you need to like actually uh, store it in a variable that you can then like add uh, add a signature to, and it gets really mess- messy very quickly. Um, yeah. And what async await does is it turns it into structured programming where you just read it top to bottom you don't care that it's taking breaks in between it's just regular old code from your point of view and that makes it so much nicer to write and so much more open to others to start figuring out right yeah oh yeah like i've said before but the barrier to entry is just so much lower for async away or for vapor in general because you're not having to figure out futures and that's literally i'm not even joking at least half the battle of vapor is just 
futures and promises. So, um, yeah, good stuff. I'm excited for when we do, you know, uh, get that kind of full circle implementation of async await into Swift six and everything. Uh, but for now it's not like the performance is terrible or anything. And for anything that you would likely be doing, especially if it's just like a basic backend, uh, database for your own personal app, like you're not going to have any issues. It's not that unperformant for sure. Mm -hmm. And if you need the performance, you can still use good old teachers and promises. Like they're still there. Um, yeah. and they still work. And if, if you know how to write high performing code, you're probably not going to be deeply impacted by the trivialities of specifying what your return types are. Uh, so, uh, that that shouldn't be too hard to kind of get acclimated to. Um, one last part of like the Swift on server ecosystem that I wanted to, uh, bring up is there's a cool, very cool package called Swift Neo SSH. Um, and at first glance, this allows you to uh, write an SSH client in Swift Neo. Now, the cool thing about this uh, that most people don't realize is all SSH is is a remote terminal, basically. It allows you to use the terminal application to do something in on another computer. Um, now, generally, this involves giving full access to that other computer, and that's what we're mostly used to when we log in via SSH. You you connect to a different computer, and then you have a full access to its terminal. Now, as an app, you can do something really cool with this, and you can vend your own terminal to other like other users. Um, so think of it this way: like you have an iOS app, and you have a bunch of commands that you can run that are like internal debug things or mm-hmm. uh, more advanced features that most users may not care about. But like one or two users, and most importantly, you as the developer could find super hap- like handy to have around. You can basically spin up much like Vapor, where you have like endpoints. You can use Swift Neo SSH uh, to spin up a bunch of commands that can be run from a terminal, um, and that's just text in and out. It's super simple. Um, mm-hmm. Whatever you uh, return back to it gets put into the other person's terminal. Whatever they type, you get as input. Um, so. Uh, it's, this is a great way to have like um, have a direct input into your app that you completely specify. You don't have to worry about um, all the intricacies there. You basically say, I have this command and I want to give back this response and you can totally do that. And that I think mm-hmm. is a really, really cool use case that I didn't necessarily consider when this library was uh, first published. Um, but it is something that it enables and that is super cool. So let me see if I kind of understand where you're getting with that. So it's almost like you're sandboxing your terminal in a way to only kind of do what you want it to and not kind of give full permission, basically. Exactly. So okay. you you basically decide what commands exist they're not necessarily commands that you're used to on a computer. You can say like sure. oh in my um I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to think of a, a a random app. In my podcasting app, I might have commands that um, record when uh, chapters should start um, and record when like mistakes happen. So that way later when I go and edit it, I have all that. Well, you can go ahead and just sign in on the terminal and now you have access to your podcasting app, whether that's a Mac app or whether that's an iOS app or whether that's a thing on a different computer. It does not matter. You signed into it via IP address, uh, 
And then from there, there's like special commands that only that app would understand. And it doesn't understand anything else. Um, so you can go ahead and say like mark chapter return. Now it's going to mark a chapter. Um, and the coolest thing about this is because it's just SSH based. Guess what? It works with everything else. So you can right. set up on your computer a script where if you press a key F5, that will go ahead and trigger that SSH connection, send that command and like close it and be done. Uh, so you have like full <laughs> command over anything. Basically, this is like the ultimate plugin experience in Unix land. Um, and that's what I think is like super cool about it. That's cool. Like literally yeah. anything can like connect to the terminal in some way to do uh -huh. something. And then once you're there, like the the world is your oyster, as they say, right? I don't know why they yeah. say that, but uh, <laughs> they do say it. They do. They do say that. Yeah. Interesting to kind of think about and like explore some real use cases like you're saying to. Yeah, I don't know. I. It would be fun to just even just try to implement and see. I don't know. I'm my mind is like thinking about possibilities and I'm not really coming up with anything concrete, but I, I, I can see the potential, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's definitely not something you would have expected as like a first party library uh -huh. that Apple just has. Uh, but if it became a first party library that Apple just has, you have to wonder like, what are they using this for internally? Maybe it's to control their own like server clusters. Who knows? Um, but it, it's something that's available and it's something that's really cool. So yeah, thought I'd share it. Nice. So next uh, tent pole that we have, and I don't think either of us have really played with this, but I have kept, um, kept an eye on it because I think it's really, really cool. Um, and this is Swift in the browser. And you might be wondering, well, like, what, what are you talking about Swift in the browser? Like, there's HTML, there's CSS, there's JavaScript, but there certainly right. isn't Swift. Um, and that's where you're f wrong, my friend, uh, because you can totally compile Swift, not into JavaScript, but WebAssembly. Um, and then that Swift can run in the browser. Um, and you might be, like, thinking, well, that's that's great and all, but can't really do much with WebAssembly nowadays. Mm -hmm. You can, like, calculate things, and that's neat, but mm, uh, not, not great. Um, and uh, Swift in the browser is not limited to just the WebAssembly part. There's uh, a JavaScript kit uh, library that it comes nearly bundled with. Like, you don't have to include it, but basically you're going to include it every time. And mm -hmm. this is a runtime for the Swift to kind of connect into JavaScript so that we can have full access to the DOM. And the DOM is the document object model. It's how JavaScript coordinates with the HTML and CSS. So at this point, you've replaced all the JavaScript and you can just have Swift and it's nice and typed and it's compiled. And it's just a resource that's loaded. Um, and you can take this further and there's a second library called Tokamak UI. Um, and if you've ever heard of this thing called Swift UI, uh, you might be interested in this because it allows mm -hmm. you to write Swift UI like code to render HTML and CSS live That's on the so page, cool. just like Swift UI works. Um, so yeah, this is, this is where it all like comes together. Um, and it's not necessarily the most mature thing. Like it is being used in, in a very variety of different things, but you do need to download like a custom Swift tool chain. Um, and a compiler just for this because it's not like super mainstream, but mm -hmm. I think it is super cool. 
uh, nonetheless. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I've, I've talked about I'm not like super huge on um, like web front end stuff. Like I use Vapor all the time, but it's always for back end stuff, right? But with something like this, uh, I could very much see me making even just like a basic admin interface for a Vapor app or something with this Tokamak UI because I'm not writing HTML and CSS. It's just basic, basically Swift UI where I am, again, more comfortable. And that's why, for me, Vapor is so cool. So even extending that further into the realm of let me, you know, very easily write uh, sort of more front-end-centric code is super cool. Um, so I, I wanted to go back to the JavaScript kit. So let me see if I understand this right. So you were saying that this basically... I mean, it interfaces with JavaScript, but you could basically replace all of the JavaScript logic in your front end. And it's just sort of, that's like the kind of intermediary layer between the HTML and CSS and the Swift code instead, but nothing really JavaScript-y in between. Is that right? Yeah, so so JavaScript includes a little JavaScript. So it is a, a runtime library um, that is designed to like run on the JavaScript side to communicate with your Swift side. Um, mm -hmm. So... That way you don't have to write any of the JavaScript. So that's that's what's really cool. nice about it. Um, and then the Tokamak UI part will write any necessary JavaScript for event handling. So that way you don't ever have to see any of it. Um, though you can. Like there's always escape hatches here and there. Um, but you don't have to. Um, and I think that's really cool because it means that in your Vapor app running on the server, you can have this be part of that ecosystem um, mm -hmm. and with like one or two packages, you have everything all linked up and you have a full Swift on the server, on the, on the front end in the browser and on your app, uh, that are basically all sharing code that can be shared. Um, now it might just be because it's convenient at, for us who are not necessarily well-versed in some of these, uh, server programming languages, Mm -hmm. But it can also be more performant and more efficient, right? Um, like Swift can be exceptionally efficient at doing certain things. Not necessarily just returning data from endpoints. That's not necessarily its strong suit. But if you need to do high-performance computing, it's going to be way better than writing something in Node or Python. Uh, so if you need to do that as a part of your server infrastructure, then that is something that's available to you. Similarly, on the web, like plain old vanilla JavaScript is not necessarily the best way of doing something. And you might want to reach towards something like React uh, that can give you a high-level abstraction that allows you to do a lot more in a more cross-browser way. And Tokamak is basically the replacement for that in Swiftland. And the nice thing about that is it doesn't have 10,000 dependencies. It is something that is much more constrained and... Uh, something that, as a result, will have a much smaller surface area in the future uh, to be attacked. So uh, if if you do want to like take a look at these projects, then that can help evolve them further um, and mm. push them to their full potential. It only comes through usage that you uh, find and fix any issues um, in a lot of these things, especially uh, these kinds of libraries that are not necessarily made for a single purpose or made for to be as general purpose as possible. Um, so definitely give these things a try if that's something that you want to like look into further, uh, because that can help push the, 
the boundaries of what's possible with Swift. And as that gets pushed, more of their work gets merged into the main Swift branch, which means that in the future, you won't necessarily need to have a separate uh, Swift compiler just for this. It might just be part of the main Swift compiler. It's just WebAssembly is yet another platform that you can just go ahead and uh, run to. Yeah, I mean, looking at this year's WWDC, Vapor was explicitly mentioned and I think even used in one of the WWDC sessions. Like, it's the community has grown it to that point of uh, popularity, I guess, where um, it's, you know, there's the Swift uh, server work group and there's someone from Apple as a representative in the work group. And it's very much sort of like, almost a first party supported thing at this point, more or less, uh, which is amazing. So getting these uh, more esoteric things like Swift Wasm and all that supported as well would be super cool. And I mean, for me, like, as far as Vapor goes, I'm not smart enough really to do anything to contribute to Vapor. I <laughs> I opened one pull request and that's it. And it was for something super simple just to say that I've done it. And it was, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, it wasn't, I mean, that's all it was, but it, I'm not regularly contributing, but there are other ways that you can do that. You can support it. You can just use it, which is huge and start up and GitHub and stuff, but you can also uh, like sponsor it and pay like five bucks a month or more and just help those who are dedicating a lot of time and, you know, who are smart enough to work on it to continue to work on it. So there's that as well. Mm -hmm. And and contributing to it, like, involves reporting bugs. Like, that is a contribution. And unlike sure. Apple's infamous bug reporter, you do get responses. Like, uh, someone's... Uh, uh, a name that you're going to see right away is Tim. And Tim is, like, mm -hmm. the one of the lead maintainers. And he is going to... He's going to be there to make sure that you have a good time using Vapor. Uh, because... That that has become basically his job at this point. Yeah. Uh, to make sure that vapor like is stewarded in a good direction. Uh, so uh, you might be misusing something, and there might be an easy solution, or you might be missing something, and you uh, you uh, submitting that bug may lead to a someone else picking it up and fixing it. It is open source software, so you, there's no guarantees there. Or B, it might lead to someone helping you be able to fix it yourself. Um, and as we've mentioned many times in the past, Vapor is just a package, which means that, uh, and all these things, they're just packages. So this means that you can put breakpoints in Vapor's code to see like, hey, what is Vapor doing with this request that is like yeah. causing problems for me? And you might be able to solve it that way. Or you might be able to see like, hey... I just missed like one line of code or Vapor just missed one line of code and it would be able to handle my situation just fine. Um, and there's no need for like a huge paradigm shift or anything. Uh, so that's something that you can go ahead and submit as like a PR. Um, and maybe that breaks a bunch of tests and it's there's a bunch of tests. So you know with confidence that you're not necessarily just introducing code that's going to throw a wrench in everyone else's business. Mm -hmm. um, so... I think that's the nice thing uh, and when open source software like works really, really well is when it is like well loved by the community. Um, and that means that one, if like there's something that's sincerely broken with the sockets part of Vapor, like all in Swift Neo, like Apple's engineers are on that. They're going to fix that um, because it they want that to be as robust as possible. And if you found that issue, then it likely impacts other people as well. They're 
our Slack groups uh, that you can directly communicate with uh, all these engineers, whether on the low end on Swift Neo or on the higher end uh, via Discord and with Vapor. Uh-huh. And everyone is basically willing to help each other, so it's it's really um, it, it's it's really something that uh, is nice, I think. And completely impossible if it was closed source. Yeah. Like, if SwiftUI goes wrong, like, you have no input insight <laughs> into, like, what's what's wrong there. Uh, if Tokamak UI goes wrong, like, you have breakpoints. And you can go ahead and explore that. Um, though, I don't know how that works, like, when it's running live in the browser. If there's, oh, like, yeah. good debugging support. I would assume there probably is. Um, but, yeah. Uh, anyways, this leads to our next tent pole, uh, and that is command line tools. So as we said, like most Vapor apps, they are command line tools. And a command line tool is basically just a program uh, that can take inputs at time of run, and it may like continue running indefinitely, like Vapor, or it may do its thing and then stop immediately, like most terminal commands that you're used to. Like if you CD, it will change the directory and then exit out. Um, right. And although CD may not be like a full executable, it might just be part of the, um, uh, what's that called? The shell that you're using. Uh, the shell is a command line tool that you can you can just switch to a different shell by running one. Um, you can use editors. like You can do all sorts of things in terminal applications uh, in these programs. And command line tools are basically the framework that they all use. Even your apps, like all the apps that we have, they're all technically command line tools but they all interface with something called the windows server or springboard in ios sense to put stuff on the screen um but like you can run uh text edit from the terminal you just go to textedit.app slash content slash macOS slash text edit and it will just start running and then it will like wait there as if it's accepting input it doesn't care what you type at anymore at that point because it's running it's windows it has its own run loop but when you quit it then that terminal window becomes usable again so it's all like linked together this is the most foundational type of program uh that you can kind of write but this also means that you can do some pretty cool stuff with it yeah um as an example what um we ran (laughs) what we ran into at work was um we were talking about localization at work and we just send out our localized strings um, to a service to get them localized into, I think, 10 languages or something uh, for LumaFusion. And um, the service itself doesn't accept the X, XC lock files, X clock, I don't know, XC LOC files. Uh, but it accepts the xlif files that are kind of inside of basically the folder that is an x clock. So um, we have a we had a, a Python script that would, uh, or sorry, we we have the shell script that would take them out of the folder out of the x clock and a, a Python script that would uh, remove any strings that we didn't want to be localized. There were like there were some that we use like with basically like a hashtag or uh a pound i don't actually know like the correct term for that but anyway we have a couple strings that we wanted to take out and so it was this python script to run through the xml document the xlif is basically just xml um run through it and rip out any of those strings so that we don't pay for those to be localized when there's nothing to be localized there um 
<laughs> and we were we sat there at our office uh, on Wednesday trying to figure out why the Python script wouldn't run. And it was because I don't know when this this changeover happened, but we're all on Monterey um, and the default Python for the, the terminal is Python 3, not Python 2.7. Uh, it happened for both me and my boss on our new, you know, M1 Ultra machines. So that was the issue. We were, you know, trying to look at like syntax errors in the Python script. And my boss is super weirded out because he has used this, you know, very much in the past and stuff. And it was the first time I had looked at it. Anyway, that's a long story to say. Uh, we both got frustrated. We figured out it was Python 2.7 that I just needed to install like an hour and a half maybe after running through all of that stuff. Uh, and it was a pain. And so we both thought, well, what a better way than to spend more time on something and write it in Swift. <laughs> so uh, I ended up just taking that, making a command line tool uh, in Swift. And at first I did make it as like a command line interface, like Xcode project, but eventually switched it over to uh, what Dimitri had suggested to me and just made it a, a purely Swift package. Um, I think we're hoping to make it just like an Xcode plugin extension or whatever they're called uh, in Xcode 14. So luckily I didn't need to change any code at all. It just changed how I ran the code from the shell script. Um, but now it's very easily readable and debuggable and I can put breakpoints in it. And I, uh, you know, just used the XML document class or struct or whatever um, that is in foundation and everything in it. It was easy to convert over. So I spent a day working on it. But my uh, the whole thing to say with this is um, it's running Swift in just this shell script now uh, by calling the Swift package. But I, you know, I had a couple structs um, and there's this uh, Swift argument parser that's a first party uh, Swift package from Apple uh, to basically make it really, really easy to make like an entire command line tool that isn't just like CD, like Dimitri said, but you know, when you pull up, like you type Git or whatever, it says like, welcome to Git or whatever. Here are the, uh, you know, dash V for verbose dash H for help or whatever. Very, it makes it very easy. Subcommands. Yeah. Makes it very easy to kind of build out that whole like tree of the initial command. Then all of these subcommands writing basically like documentation for all of your, um, commands and everything and arguments, options, flags. Uh, it's got some cool property wrappers so that you, you know, you say like var input is like your first option. Then you have this at, uh, argument, uh, property wrapper, and then you can write a help string that pulls it up and it's just automatically added to that command line tool. Um, I don't know if I'm doing a good job at explaining it, but basically it made the interfacing with the terminal very easy where I didn't have to think about formatting text to have it show up. Um, when that command is called, it just kind of does that for me. Um, and I really just kind of had to worry about what do I want it to do when the command is called with whatever inputs outputs, uh, that you give it. So, uh, super cool, um, to be able to take something that was very, frustrating for both me and my boss and wasted a lot of time just with us sitting in our conference room trying to figure out what was going on uh into something that i mean it did take me you know a few hours to write it but now 
hopefully if there are any other issues it's very easily debuggable from by anyone on the team because it's it's just swift it's just a swift package again so mm-hmm. yeah. and i want to call out too that it may seem like a waste quote-unquote waste of time to take something that uh quote-unquote works and then just to rewrite it and something that everyone else understands but one you the developer tend to learn through that experience um mm-hmm. and that that becomes invaluable because you can go ahead and repeat that those learnings many many more times later so it's it's almost an initial investment that has a very good payoff um because it's the first time that you're learning something new um and you can go ahead and explore how that can be beneficial uh to you going forward right um so don't necessarily not not you spencer but anyone listening don't necessarily think that uh needing to spend like more time fixing something that seemingly has a simple fix like python 2.7 might not be something you can install on ventura or on whatever future mac os comes out um like it may just be closed out to you uh so uh, if you do spend time on something like this, then you do like expand what you know, um, and you are you can go ahead and use that for all sorts of other things. If you need another script, and you can instead of reaching for Bash uh, and then endlessly not knowing if you have the correct amount of parentheses or uh, squigglies <laughs> or who knows what, yeah. because Bash is Bash, um, you can go ahead and just write something that you're comfortable with. And sure, it might not be as succinct as many of these scripting languages but it can be way more efficient because you know exactly what everything is xcode is auto-completing stuff uh you you have full control over that um and you don't even need to set up like a full package for a lot of these things like if it's something Mm -hmm. that just uses foundation you can just write a swift file like that's literally all you need and you run it with a swift like command on on the terminal because you have swift installed uh, and yep. it will just open and interpret and compile and run that Swift file like in in one step, uh, and you hard you will hardly notice if a single Swift file is being compiled because it's not necessarily a whole project that needs to be linked across multiple modules or anything. Like it's just more or less instant. So if if you need to reach for something quick and dirty, uh, Swift is actually not that bad of a of a choice. Um, and it might have some rough edges still when it comes to like strings and stuff when you want to be fast and loose and you don't really care about, uh, any issues, but Xcode will like point out, Hey, you have an error on this line. So you don't even have to figure that out later. You can go ahead and deal with it now. And if you build an Xcode, you can like just see it in the output of Xcode, like what your, what your program is doing. So I think that's really neat. Yep. Um, it was nice that like as an example the what i was doing was you know part not parsing an xml document but taking a, a fully created xml document and kind of ripping out things that i didn't care about and the good part was because i knew that this was going to be running on just one of our macs and everything uh i could just use the i don't know if I, it's probably in foundation let me see um just the xml document yeah, it's in foundation, the XML document class. Uh, and I didn't need to find some third party library to do that for me that, you know, would run on the server in, in Linux or anything. It was just, it's still running on a Mac. It's not in a Mac app per se, right? But uh, it's just running on a Mac. And so you have access to importing any of the Apple 
you know, first party libraries that you would normally have access to. So that was a, a relief to say the least. So, mm-hmm. and this is especially great if you want to do anything like super complex, like you can import AV foundation. If you really want yeah. to pull in a video file, do processing on it with core image uh, and output it. And all of that can work. And it's something that I've done before, not necessarily in Swift. Like I've done this all in Objective-C, um, but it is like totally possible to do anything you can think of in a regular app in a command line app. The only difference is you need to make sure that for some things, like if you import AppKit, you need to make sure the Windows server is loaded. You can't just run it like at mm. login screen. Uh, it will not be happy. Um, but like that's that's something easy that you can set up if you want this to run uh like on command or on a schedule like when you set it up with launch d you can set it up to run when you log in uh, and then from that point forward like you don't really care so uh yeah uh command line tools really really cool very different way of thinking about like an quote unquote app but it essentially is still just a program um and as we said before vapor like that's just a command line tool it you start it and it runs until you stop it um yep. and uh that's that's like the essence of what a server is at the end of the day it's just and a program that's running on a different computer than your own um and that's not even true all the time like you can have a server running on a computer like a language server uh that multiple programs can interact with that's how uh VS Code can like show Swift auto completions on a Mac, and that's just because there's a Swift language um, server for Swift, um, and that allows different programs, Xcode included, uh, but also VS Code to show auto completions for Swift as if it were native, um, because it's all using the same system. So uh, servers, they cool. Uh, they're just apps. In the end of the day, um, they're just programs. I, I meant to say. Uh, and you connect to them. And if you want to offer some fancy connections, you got Swift Neo to help you out. Um, and yeah. Swift Neo, Swift Neo has has your back. Yeah, it's. I mean, just thinking about everything that we're doing, it's so cool to see. Like, I don't know what you call it, like the proliferation of of Swift. Just it, it's growing outside of this. I mean, just looking at, like, Objective-C, right? There was, like, the weird, like, Windows Objective-C thing uh, project that I think someone made way back in the day. Cocotron that kind of or something. Yeah. But, like, that's it as far as I know. There's not a ton of, like... I mean, you could use Objective-C in a, in a script and everything, but, like... Oh, maybe there... Man, okay, this is, maybe isn't a great example because I think there was also, like, a... Basically, like, Vapor with Objective-C, like, someone made... Uh, a web server out of Objective-C, if I remember right. Anyway, my point is, there's a lot that you can do with Swift outside of just, like, the traditional, like, iOS, macOS, tvOS, watchOS app stuff. And that's what's exciting, is when I want to make a tool, uh, I can reach for Swift, and I don't have to worry about, like, ah, shoot, if only my language could do this, I really want to stay in my my little closed ecosystem or closed open sea, you know, I want to stay in my comfort zone and I can. So that's, that's the cool part, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. There, there was a thing called Coco HCP server, if I remember correctly. Um, and this was built on top of something called Coco async socket, I think. And this was like the de facto library 
that was not built by Apple uh, for doing anything socket related because otherwise there's C and no one no one wanted to write sockets in C. <laughs> uh, so uh, you use this this thing called Cocoa Async Socket uh, and later GCD Async Socket. I think I'm remembering this correctly. I, like I might have all these names wrong in my head, but uh, I use them extensively, and this was basically everyone used these extensively. If you opened mm. any about like Mac apps about window, like you'd see this library being listed because it's like so fundamental to everything. And Apple only provided one like direction of this. They had the NS URL connection, which allows you to connect to an HTTP server. But if you want to do anything else with TCP, like good luck uh, was basically the message. Um, and you were left like to your own devices to figure that out. Um, so it's very nice that libraries like uh, Cocoa Sync Socket uh, inspire, basically, I would say, inspired things like Swift Neo um, to provide a higher level access to these very fundamental things that people want to do. Um, and by having a higher level um, like access point, you can go ahead and now share these implementations across different things. Like Spencer said, like it works on Windows, it works on Linux, it works on Mac OS, it works on Android. Um, and it's something that can work in a variety of different situations and still be the same code that you, you care about. So you need to deploy to Windows. Well, you might need one or two changes because like file paths are different, but that's that's about it. Uh, if you're not doing anything super complex or you're not like importing AV Foundation, which won't exist, um, mm -hmm. like if you're just uh, responding hello to a hello message, and that is something that you can do. If you're doing something more complex, you're interacting with the database. The database is also written in a platform agnostic way, so you can go ahead and use those. Uh, pretty much everywhere as well. So, um, yeah, there, there's perhaps some confusion of potential confusion of like what is part of a platform and what is platform agnostic. Um, but yep. the Swift server uh, working group does a pretty good job of outlining like what can basically work on anything and uh, anything Apple is directly talking about is generally stuff that only works on Apple's platforms. And there, uh, I'm going to butcher the name, um, <clears throat> like Foundation, for example, isn't available on Linux, but you've got like, I think it's Core Foundation or Open Foundation. Uh, I think it's Core Foundation. Um, and people are sort of, uh, probably I'd assume rewriting Foundation, but in an open source way. So you can go on their repo and see like what things have been implemented, um, Dimitri, do you, I'm sure you know more about that. I'm, yeah, so there's there's Core Foundation, which is a C library. Um, and Core Foundation has always been open sourced. Like, this is the part oh. of Cocoa that's always been available because it has ties from way back when. Uh, like, before, it's, it's not Objective-C. It's pure C, but object-oriented oh. um, as best as it can be. Um, and this is open source. You can look at the source code for CF Array, which is... NS array. NS array is just a wrapper around CF array. Um, and uh, core foundation is like that. Uh, foundation, the library, has been re-implemented from Objective-C into Swift, and that re-implementation is completely open source. So things like uh, XML document might not be available. Um, yeah, but they are not. declared because they're technically part of foundation. 
um, and people are free to fill in the stub methods. Um, and mm -hmm. generally what this involves is calling the corresponding core foundation counterparts because everything in foundation is part of core foundation. Um, and that is um, how you can link everything up. So yeah, everything that's in foundation is available like via core foundation. Um, and I would say by this point, everything has been implemented in uh, foundation that you would need. There are some things that are still lacking, like URL sessions, new async await abilities. Um, mm. For some reason, have not landed in the Swift version of uh, foundation. Um, and this is important because on Linux, that means you can't use async await with URL session. That said, uh, when you're doing Swift on server stuff, generally you don't want to be using uh, URL session. You're going to use async HTTP socket. Uh, no, async HTTP client, I think it's called. Um, and this allows you Probably. to do like the opposite of what a server would do. As a client, you can connect to an HTTP server and do something. Right. And the key piece here is it uses Swift Neo. Like that was the only reason it exists because this means you don't have to hop between threads. You can continue to use the same thread pool that Swift Neo sets up. And uh, just as you receive a request from another client, you can make a request to another server and that's all going to be coordinated for you. Um, you just need to say like, hey, next I want to do this. When this comes back, next I want to do this. When that comes yeah. back, next I want to do this. Um, so you can coordinate a bunch of different things all happening simultaneously really easily uh, because it's all built on Swift Neo. Um, and that's probably why like some things haven't made it to the Swift Foundation yet. Um, and this leads us to our very last uh, tentpole of the day. Uh, and this is the one that we kind of alluded to at the beginning when Apple said that uh, Swift is running on the Secure Enclave, which is a coprocessor. This is a, something called an embedded device. So embedded devices generally do not have an OS. Uh, there is no like operating system and kernel that is managing anything. Like your program is the OS. Um, you you have a starting address, and whatever's at the starting address will be what is run as like executable code, and you manage pretty much everything else in the way you want to manage it. Um, now, generally, things are a lot more uh, powerful and a lot more complicated than they used to be back in the day. Like, it's not something along the lines of you have uh, a few kilobytes of, um, of executable, like, memory. You have a lot more nowadays, but it's still limited, uh, generally around 4 megabytes of ROM. Um, so it was traditionally a little hard to get Swift into that environment because Swift, once you compile it, uh, your hello world can turn into something quite large because not only does it need to have your executable code for hello world, it needs to have the executable code for the Swift runtime and all the libraries that are all part of that ecosystem. And on Mac OS, that's a shared library like all programs are going to be using it, but on an embedded system, Heck, you're the only user of it, and therefore you need to load it up regardless. Uh, so uh, that can be uh, a problem for Swift. Um, and something that uh, has been done in the past year um, that has made this whole process a lot easier um, is the Unicode library that Swift was relying on to provide uh, Unicode support has been rewritten, I believe uh, was mentioned in Swift. Um, and what this means is that it can be selectively uh, included when you need it. 
Um, and if you are not using uh, complex with string processing, you can leave it out. Um, and if nothing you import uses complex with processing, then it's not an issue that you ever need to deal with. Um, so this has been split up as a part of the regex um, uh, work that uh, Apple was doing. So curse you regex, but thank you regex. Um, and it is something that enables uh, this brand new environment to be possible, um, which is running Swift in uh, a much more constrained environment. But because it is Swift, because it is a compiled language, because it can go ahead and take shortcuts and simplify things, and you can have generic code that uh, has structs as uh, like the most optimal way of accessing data. Like you can get some very high performance if you know how to play your cards right. Uh, if you will. So it's not necessarily like automatic super high performance. You still need to work for it, but it's high performance that might be a little easier to achieve than uh, needing to like wrangle C++ and its multitude of features, for instance. Right. Um, I remember it was back in like, can't remember when it started, but there was this... Um, Swift for Arduino thing going on that I, maybe is sort of the precursor to this. Let's see mm-hmm. if there's... Yeah, so that uh, was the first few attempts at something like this. And they basically uh-huh. needed to rip everything out of Swift and uh-huh. then like bring in just what they needed for Hello World. And then they tried something more complex and just bring in that um, <clears throat> and kind of like repatchwork it together to get it to work. So it's not at all, all ideal for anything. Um, but... Yeah. Uh, seeing as Apple's now using this internally, like the the key dream, right, of Swift was from from the app to the silicon. Like it's something that you can run at any level uh, is finally starting to precipitate, and I think that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, exactly. So like it was a ton of work. It looks like they're actually still updating it, which is super cool. But um, yeah, I mean, it was no doubt a ton of work just to get it running on an Arduino. But now that there's this Swift embedded library, um, it's no doubt much, much easier. Um, of course, you've got the limitations. And like Dimitri said, yeah, having the entire tool chain uh, on something that has like four megabytes of storage uh, could potentially not leave you a ton of space. But um, like their example in the repo uh, says... A Hello World application has a little bit over one megabyte because it uh, includes a big part of the Swift standard library. However, it's a fixed cost and you can fit a quite quite a lot on a microcontroller with two megabytes of flash because then basically that extra megabyte is just your own code. And that's that's a lot of code that you could write. It's a so, million more bytes, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you can, you know, go from there and say, all right, well, now there's something that is... Uh, you could fit a lot more, and also, no doubt, it's a lot easier to get it just working on a board in general. So, uh, be interesting to see like the specs of what the the secure enclave is. I'm sure it's more powerful than that, but it's probably not huge either. Mm-hmm. Um, so. No, I would imagine it has a very a very small uh, like amount of flash that's available to it. Uh, that it runs from it probably has a very low uh like uh what's it called the cycle cycle speed um like clock speed clock speed 
Um, it probably has a very low clock speed. It's not necessarily doing heavy lifting. Its sole purpose is to like cryptographically sign things, which it probably has special instructions for um, uh-huh. that are like suited to it. Like you tell it, hey, here's some data. Here's some data that represents a key. Please sign this or please uh, verify the signature. Um, and it can go ahead and do that probably very, very well. Uh, but it's it's probably not capable of doing much else uh, in in a reasonable amount of time. So uh, that that would be my guess. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I was going to ask you, it sounds like you know way more than I do about this um, Swift Embedded. Um, so like, you know, if you ever work with like a Raspberry Pi or an Arduino, you're always dealing with like GPIO pins, right? And like having things happen when things happen to those pins and everything, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is there like functionality to like interact with IO pins on these boards? Is that like a part of this this kind of specific tool chain? Do you know? So the Swift embedded uh, library that I'm going to link in the in the show notes was a previous attempt at this. It's not really a library. It's just an example of doing oh, okay. this. It's the tool <clears throat> chain more than anything else. Um, so I wouldn't say that there's any like library to access the pins. There's like nothing high level. However, uh, when you spend any amount of time doing this, of which I have spent like almost none, but I've spent a ton of uh, equivalent time in YouTube, I'd like to pat myself on the back with, um, <laughs> which amounts to nothing. But um, I, I have I have spent a, a significant part of my life at this point, like learning about stuff like this and being very curious about it. And it seems like the way that these pins work is they're just a location in memory that you can read or write. Um, and that's basically it. Um, they're the, the way most of these uh, systems work, and especially when you scale them up to a computer, um, is you have regions of memory that are part of a bus. Um, and that bus can either like link those uh, regions of memory to actual chips of memory, or they can link them to something completely different, like a display um, or... Mm input output uh controller pins like you can you can think of basically anything um and that region of memory just becomes available and wired up um and it might not be memory but you can still write to it um and you can still read from it so when you write to it if you put zeros and ones on a byte and you say this is available at this address and then you tell a separate byte, like, hey, load from that address, um, that might be you signaling to the display driver, hey, this is data that you want to consume. And then you do that enough times, and the display driver is like, hey, I have enough data to put some uh, letters on my segmented display. Um, right. okay. And that's how that all, like, hooks together. So individual pins, those are just bits at the, at the end of the day. Um, and you choose, like, I want to set these bits to this or that. Um, and once you set them, they're quote unquote set um based on whatever like shift register is connected up to mm-hmm. it to keep that value alive um because the cpu is only doing one thing at a time it's setting this memory and then changing the address and then setting that to something else so um so the cpu okay, is just so like, there's like go for it sorry there's, so there's like I mean, I guess the, you'd have to have documentation on, like, the specific microcontroller you're using, but there's really no reason that this couldn't do it, basically. Exactly. So, uh, you, this, 
the tool train that you use is very tailored towards the microcontroller that you're using, uh, right? Because it needs to know like what assembly it understands. It's not like magic that Swift is just gonna like be compatible with it. If you have mm-hmm. a microcontroller that has different assembly, it's not like based on ARM, for instance. It's based on something novel that you made up. You have to write a compiler. Like that's right. Yeah. At the end of the day, that's what you need to do. However, you only need to write the output compiler because LVM is something that is fully extensible. Like the Swift front end is separate from your compiler that will Mm -hmm. assemblify, uh, the, 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 the IR, the intermediate representation into assembly. So at that point, it can be Swift. It can be C. It can be C++. It can be JavaScript. It doesn't really matter what that input is. Uh, you can turn it into whatever you need to turn it into. So uh, this is where all this kind of fits in is um, I imagine soon it will be much easier to kind of use the Swift front end with any back end that you want and not necessarily end up with a huge binary at the end of the day. Um, yeah. Because it's, it's not something that necessarily needs to be included. Like for uh, in order to print Hello World... You need a lot. You need an output, right? And an output is not for granted. As as I just said, it might be special pins that go to display. Um, and that might be something that is very unique to your hardware setup that you're currently dealing with. Yeah. Um, it might just be a sequence of bytes that is just transmitted over a literal wire to something else. That is a very different scenario as well. Um, so... Uh, print hello world is not as simple as you might think but uh one like var a equals one var b equals two um and then memory address equals a plus b that is a little easier um and that's generally what you're kind of starting from when you're doing this embedded stuff uh because you're just shifting data around at the end of the day um you're moving stuff from this memory address to that memory address and a lot of times it's pretty easy to do that with uh, assembly like even uh, but it's something that you need to learn it's like you, you don't have if statements sorry um so it's a it's a little it's a little hard to deal with and once you get into structured programming you have a bit more control but at the end of the day you also lose some control because swift is like stubborn when it comes to accessing memory um so there are some difficulties there but you can write abstractions and once you write those abstractions then it becomes way nicer to use so if you have an abstraction for your particular uh, little camera module or your particular uh, little display module that works the way it works, like you you move to this memory address and you give it this data and that will trigger something. And you do that sequence enough times, uh, then it has enough data to display whatever message you want to display. Um, that can just be a function or a class or a struct or whatever mm-hmm. you want. Um, and then you just have to call it and say like, hey, uh, I want to show this this data, uh, print screen, you might want to call it, and that will just work. Um, right. So that's what this comes down to at the end of the day is you need to do a lot of low level stuff because you're working at the lowest level possible. No OS. Uh, your code is the code. Um, but you can also do high level stuff once you've written uh, an abstraction layer on top of the low level stuff. And that's what you do with assembly too. That's like, it's not like you're going to, every time you need to print something to the, your little display controller, you're going to go ahead and switch a bunch of pins, uh, and do that manually. No, you're going to call a subroutine because you don't want to ever yeah. deal with that ever again. <laughs> uh, so you call your subroutine and say, Hey, the data is at this register. Uh, and that register points to uh null terminated sequence of memory. So deal with it. 
Um, like that's what you would write. Uh, and yeah. yeah, that makes it a ton easier to do all sorts of stuff. And I would assume that's what like Arduino ends up being. Like you have some high level, I think Python code for the most part, right? Um, like it's uh, in... I think it's C. Is it C? I don't know. Yeah, it shows, you, shows you like how little we know about all this. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it's something that at that point, you don't necessarily need to deal with the display controller or the camera You're module. You're just importing a library. Or, or the LEDs on the pins. Like You just import LED library, um, and that allows you to interact with pins. You just need to say, mm-hmm. oh, this LED is at this pin, this LED is at that pin. I want to turn them on and off, please. Um, and you are able to do that. So this week's episode of Code Completion is once again brought to you by Bon Voyage. Bon Voyage is a full-stack iOS application development course from Johnny B. With this course, you'll learn how to build both a full iOS client app and an associated React web administration application. The app and the site will integrate with Firebase as well as Stripe and Plaid for payment processing. Bon Voyage is a place to book extravagant vacations and you'll gain the skills to build the iOS app from the ground up and integrate everything you need to provide a world-class vacation booking experience. You'll find out more and sign up for the course. Uh, so to do so, uh, visit bonvoyage.app slash course. That's B-O-N-V-O-Y-A-G-E dot A-P-P slash C-O-U-R-S-E. And be sure to follow Bon Voyage's instructor, Johnny B. Codes, that's at J-O-N-N-Y-B-C-O-D-E-S, on Twitter to stay up to date with all his courses. Thanks again to the Bon Voyage e-commerce app course for sponsoring Code Completion. As always, I want to personally thank everyone for listening in this week. Please be sure to follow us on uh, Twitter at Code Completion to know when new episodes get released and feel free to tweet at us if there's ever a topic you'd like for us to dig into. Most importantly, as a small podcast, please be sure to share this with your friends and family who are also interested in any part of the process of app development. It's your support that enables us to continue doing this and we hope to grow a healthy community around everything we discuss. Once again, I want to give my thanks to Spencer, who is at Spencer C. Curtis. That's S-P-E-N-C-R-C-C-U-R-T-I-S on Twitter for joining me this week. My name once again is Dimitri. You can find me at Dimitri Buniel. That's D-I-M-I-T-R-I-B-O-U-N-I-O-L. And we'll see you all next week. Bye. Okay. Uh, I have a a little mini, hopefully not too many, uh, but mini topic I wanted to get into. Yes. Uh, and that good. is uh, Awesome Games Them Quick. And they had a very interesting uh, reveal midway through uh, a what? what it, it's they usually call these sessions like a showcases, um, a showcase, yeah, a glitch showcase. Um, yeah. And these are really cool because you got to like see all sorts of wacky things that um, can be exploited inside of a, a game that you know and love. Um, and this one was a glitch showcase of uh, Ocarina of Time, and basically like two-thirds of the way and they reveal this is not actually a glitch showcase this is actually a new category that we're calling triforce percent um and you might be wondering what's triforce percent um and when ocarina time was like first unveiled and i'm not talking about release i'm talking about just unveiled like these are demo uh scenes Mm -hmm. that they like showed off um at like something called space world which is not a thing anymore um so when that was first revealed they showed a bunch of things that no one ever has seen in the game like a unicorn fountain uh and link achieving uh and attaining the triforce 
Um, and this was more like just demo material. Like they need to put something on screen, and they don't. Yeah. They have a game <laughs> engine. They don't have a game. Um, so they're like, let's just throw something together. And perhaps some of these ideas were like meant for the final game because on the first version of the cartridge, there are a bunch of demo assets that were like vestigial left over. And if you know anything about like ancient game consoles, space is limited. Like you don't just leave this stuff around. Um, yeah. Much like the embedded system, like you have megabytes to work with, not gigabytes. You have like single digit megabytes at maximum to work with for your entire 3D game, which is, like, mind-blowing. Um, so you don't have very much room to just leave around for these big graphics that you're never going to use. And yet, they were still there. So that makes you think that uh, they were potentially being considered quite late into the development cycle, and there potentially mm-hmm. were aspects that were using them. Um, and... Um, this this glitch showcase showed off a lot of those. Um, and what they did is they did something very interesting. And they built up the missing pieces from everything that we know. It's all speculation, really. Um, but they were able to build up these missing pieces and put together a storyline that leads Link to attain the Triforce. Um, and you might be wondering, well, that's cool. Like, they, they just modified a cartridge to kind of get this going. There's been a lot of work on decompiling uh ocarina time and getting it getting it to the point where you can basically do whatever you want in the game uh you just gotta rebuild a rom and put her in uh have a modified system and it's just an emulator you can do whatever you want right easy peasy yeah except except and this is like not they did not so you have an unmodified n64 the only modification was instead of like coaxial out or whatever they had back in those days i'm just kidding it's the it's the yellow white and red uh video uh component i think it's called uh i don't know it's been a long time um i'm not sure if my tv even has that anymore actually i had a tv that did not have it and my newer tv does have it which is weird uh but yeah i can technically plug in a nintendo 64 on a 4k television it'll look like nice absolute garbage (laughs) as a result uh, but they did modify that to have a clean RGB signal. Um, so this is still what the system is outputting. It just does not get converted into an analog signal. Mm-hmm. Um, so pure digital signal out. That's the only like difference from the game's point of view. It's none the wiser. Um, and the cartridge is an original unmodified like cartridge. Now something yep. that has become possible uh, with Ocarina of Time in the past few years is something called arbitrary code uh execution Execution. or ace um and this allows uh prospective players uh to uh mess with the game and do shenanigans that they uh definitely should not be doing like writing their own code um and this allows uh them to like flip bits like fast forward to the end of the game and that's how uh, any percent is currently done. You do a whole bunch of wacky stuff in the Kogiri Forest, and then bam, you're at the end of the game. Um, yep. And none of it makes sense. Uh, it might have crashed, uh, like, if you did one slight thing a little, little bit wrong because you set up memory addresses wrong. Uh, but long story short, uh, they started off doing this, um, and they did something very interesting. Instead of warping to the end of the game, they basically moved the uh, instruction pointer, like, that the game runs automatically... Uh, from the, whatever it needs to run in the game to the controller inputs. 
And the controller inputs were connected to something called TaskBot, which is like a, a little Rob, uh, yeah. like uh, guy that's uh, that someone connected up to a computer, and it basically just over USB will flip the pins on the controllers as if you're pressing buttons really, really fast and in a uh, very accurate way. So this is not necessarily meant to be done by a human, though they it has been done by humans like not necessarily in Ocarina of Time but like crazy things like reprogramming Super Mario World to become Flappy Bird has been done yeah. by human <laughs> like live on stage and it's mind-blowing uh but this is on like a slower system where you can actually like keep up <laughs> pressing buttons really fast and in a very accurate way uh this is a bit like out of the realm of humanity uh but it is possible like you can imagine a robot on top of a controller pressing button like yeah, really yeah. quickly that's essentially the same thing and that's kind of the the nuance that they wanted to like make very obvious they're not connecting the system in any way they're not using any uh pins that are not available on a controller it's just controller input um they're not using the little memory uh pack that you can connect into uh-huh. like they could do whatever they want if if those were the limitations but no they said just button input uh they uh, set up not one, not two, not three, but four bootloaders that will like g- call the next one uh, incrementally. So the first one basically just speeds things up from like one byte per frame to two bytes per frame, and then from two bytes per frame to four, and from four to sixty-four, um, to the point where you can actually like get actual data into the N sixty-four, mm-hmm. um, and they progressively like do this one after another and link like fidgets a little bit and then it's quote unquote done and all the player needs to do at this point like there is someone still controlling the game at this during this whole point in time which is like pretty crazy um like they they create the input the taskbot did not like get uh a remote code execution working uh it was a human that did that and then the human just said hey taskbot can you press buttons for me pretty take over on the other controller ports um so at this point they take over and they like go in and out of the forest and then uh all of a sudden they have a debug menu that's part of the game that's just like turned off uh available to them and you can flip some inventory um and then they start playing through and they start like addressing all sorts of interesting things like the fact that you can power up masks or the fact that you actually can beat the running man um and you can actually like fight him as a boss like there were a bunch of weird ideas and wacky ideas that were like part of this game uh animations left intact uh that were just never used um and rumors that started as a result like oh how can you ever beat the running man well maybe you can change from adult to child and from child to adult without visiting the temple of time and that allows you to cheat um and by cheating that allows you to get certain aspects of the triforce and of course they made up the time like the narration Uh, along the way like they needed to patch in stuff that just did not exist but based on things that they knew uh based on things that were found on development carts from like the space world demo they were able to inject this code live on stage uh, to an unmodified system in in memory uh that completely changed how the game works um so this is like the portion of uh gcd where they like turn it into a tech talk um that talks about like how like what they're doing 
Um, and it gets to the point where they are live injecting, like at the very end of the video, um, I don't want to spoil all of it, but at the very end of the video, they are live injecting the comments from like the community on Twitch live. Yeah. That's, that's the point that they get. So, uh, it's, it's completely wackadoodle. Um, but yeah, so amazing. So just wanted to call out that. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely go watch it. Um, I was watching a video on kind of, you know, sort of talking about it. I need to watch the just like straight up run. Um, but I, I watched the video of like how it was done and son. And I want to say, and I could definitely be getting this wrong, but um, for all of the code that was written from the taskbot, it was something like 2 million inputs or instructions or something. Like it was a ton of information that was written in order to you know create the storyline and it shows uh them you know like they made their own assets and everything and that had to be injected into the the cartridge through this task bot and everything and just absolutely insane like we we we've talked about this before the dedication of speedrunners is insane and people reverse engineering the entire game but then taking it further and like thinking about oh how can we get to the end of the game as like the end game of arbitrary code execution to let's create an entire like quest line uh is incredible it's so cool just to i mean i think dimitri and i are probably the two out of like all of the code completionists that like love ocarina of time the most like it's very much like the game of my childhood that and like Mm -hmm. mario 64 so to see this like uh, to see people speed run the game just in general still is super cool. And, uh, you know, it's always nostalgic. I mean, the music's great. The the game itself is great. It's like I kind of have like the, um, oh, I don't know what they call it. But just like my perception of the game is just like it's like perfect, even though like the graphics like that's like the one game where it's like I don't think the graphics haven't aged well. Like I think it still looks really good. I don't know. It's kind of weird. I mean, they like, had shadows. Like, uh, that, yeah. that's that's the thing is, as long as you have shadows, they don't need to be the best shadows. They don't need to be accurate. They're just gradients yeah. in one direction <laughs> for two feet. Like, it's not a yeah. shadow shadow, but it's a shadow. Like, that's all you yeah. needed to trick your brain into be like, oh, this is a real light. There's an environment that you're interacting with. And uh, Link's face is small enough they don't notice how jank it looks. Um, and that's just <laughs> the way it is, right? <laughs> like... Yeah, it's it's perfect. It's like rose colored glasses, but it's so cool. Um, mm-hmm. And to see people like, man, yeah, you got to watch the end of the thing. It's just, like really cool, kind of like callback. You know, twenty three years later, like we're still in this. There's still the story going on, and uh, being able to inject like comment, like Twitch live chat, basically into the game is like, oh my gosh, so <laughs> super cool. I don't know, man. It's people's dedication is cool. Um, and and once again, I don't want to spoil it, but uh, the Nintendo 64 is capable of some interesting graphical abilities. Yeah! Um, so it's not as uh, ancient as you might think with uh, 23 years of chops on our shoulders to, to fully optimize it. Um, yeah. So um, I think... Yeah, we, uh, go for it. Sorry, I was just going to say, I think we talked about this before, but was it the Nintendo 64 that was like the... The console that like C was just like a brand new thing and like they were still figuring out a lot yeah. of stuff. 
was uh, what was that video we i think we mentioned it it was super good though mm-hmm. but just like there were it wasn't optimized none of the stuff was optimized because it was yeah, such they, a new language they had now. no idea what they were doing um yeah so <laughs> like they they made that game knowing no idea what they're doing uh basically like inventing architectures along the way like we love to do um so yeah. Uh, if you feel bad and you're like Swift is grumble grumble this and Swift UI is grumble grumble that, um, like this is just programming. Like we've been, <laughs> we as developers and programmers been here. Uh, have been doing this. It seems like since the beginning of programming, it's, there's always something new. There's always uh, inadequacies with it, and you work around it. And then three years down the line, you realize, hey, that first version of Swift UI, you can do some pretty crazy stuff with it. We just didn't really know, um, and. Uh, you can move on to Swift UI 4, which is new and shiny, um, or you can like stick around with the old one and, and still provide these really cool experiences. So uh, it's something that you need to like build up experience with. And uh, after many, many decades at this point of having uh, Nintendo 64 hardware, uh, it seems like people have started figuring out cool stuff that they can do with it that uh, was not previously possible. I mean... Once again, this is not using any expansion ports. Like, it uses the RAM expansion, the expansion pack. I didn't know that was a RAM expansion. I just knew that some games needed it, and I was like, okay, uh, buying this thing, I guess. Um, Or, oh, please, can you buy me this thing? More like it. Um, And that just goes on top of the Nintendo 64, and then that is what is necessary for all this to work, because that's where all the code is being uploaded into. That's the extra RAM um, that is being used, so... The craziest part of all this is a human can do this. Like most of what the taskbot was doing was to make it possible to see this in a live setting, right? Yeah. Uh, you can push 2 million inputs one by one if you wanted to. And you can have the thing read once per second. So you do one input and then you do another input and then you do another <laughs> input over like four controllers. Like you could totally do this as a human or perhaps uh, with a friend. Um, but you could totally do this one by one. And if no one messes up, you can end up with the same exact result. Uh, but like, just have a little robot do it for you. It's not necessarily very different at the end of the day. And that is the coolest part of this technical demo. Um, because that's what it is at the end of the day. Uh, a tool assisted speed run, uh, that's what a task is, is you have a tool that's doing what a human could potentially hypothetically do. But is pretty darn hard. So we have something demo it along. Uh, so that way we can see the possibility for this. And some games have like reached that point where like the tool assisted thing is what humans can do. And there's nothing better. Like I think the original Super Mario is like one of those examples where uh, you have to reach like frame boundaries anyways. So it's like there's no point speeding up and uh, getting a little faster because it's still going to like be the same yeah. time. Um, but for other things like this, it shows us like what could potentially be possible. Um, and I think that's really, really cool. Yep. So I will have links to both the, uh, the actual run, which has finally come out, um, and, uh, the explanations, uh, they have released, uh, the, so this was like a very, um, coordinated, attempt on on this on this team uh because a lot of people were involved so they didn't want their like Mm -hmm. hard work to go unnoticed and they 
well deserved that. Like the copyright at the end of this is their team, and then Nintendo. <laughs> like they did a significant amount of work for this so particular cool. demo. Uh, so uh, they did a coordinated effort to get a whole bunch of Zelda YouTubers, like all working on uh, this, like together uh, to showcase how this is possible and what work went into it. Like basically, within a week or two of arbitrary code execution being possible like people start thinking of this project yeah. um so so it's uh, been like years in the making oh yes it's it's not like it's instant insane. overnight that it, this yeah. is possible um yeah yeah uh if, if you thought like hackers getting into your phone was bad this is like hackers getting in and rewriting your house um and you're like how did you get in my house for my phone that's basically the the analogy that's going on here um yeah. so uh yeah the, there's a lot of effort we'll post the video to the actual run which you should definitely run first and then i'll post a video of uh my favorite exploration of it that really explains like what's going on how can a controller input do any of this stuff anyways spoiler alert it's a memory address that's all it is at the end of the day you tell the cpu hey read from this memory address and that's where the controller is um so it's, it's just it's magic like it's gpio pins or something <clears throat> That's yeah, crazy. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> you press a button that that bit is on. Uh, that's a, a circuit was established. Ancient <laughs> ancient stuff at work. Um, I guess there weren't that many pins on the Nintendo sixty four like port. So there's like I guess, three. It's like oh. there's the four and then five. I don't know. Uh, they they oh. had some way of communicating a byte through that, and that's what you get. I think it was like six bytes for like each controller. Um, and then that does not include the expansion thing, which has a lot of pins. So I'm sure it's like a, right. some serial port of some sort. Um, probably one for like a pair for the controller, a pair for the the IO on the on the controller board. Um, but yeah, anyways, uh, long story short, this is an embedded system at the end of the day. Maybe you can run Swift on an N64 one day. Who knows? Oh uh, my gosh. <laughs> you'll be able to just run your Hello World because you'll fill it up with standard library. <laughs> um yeah i just looked it up the uh of course it's in like 16 megabyte increments but the uh, ocarina of time entire rom is like it's like 26 megabytes on a 32 megabyte um cartridge that's it Mm -hmm. that's the entire game dude that's crazy yeah and there's a lot to that it's not like sure any percents they like go fast but 100 percent that still takes hours even today to like fully completely there's a lot of stuff in the game um and sure a lot of it is assets but a lot of it is code as well right um and like code is surprisingly large uh when you don't when you don't think about it especially when you want to make an app clip of something and you can't make an app clip because it's bigger than 10 megabytes uh that's that's uh all they've got an entire physics engine in there man yeah that's crazy link's hat used to be all wavy and physics-y uh i guess it was distracting i don't know maybe it caused crashes or something (laughs) who knows um (laughs) but yeah uh so definitely check this out i think there is a special rom available that like the taskbot did all its stuff to already so you can actually Mm. play uh their their particular demo uh without having a taskbot like do it for you however it's like super finicky it does not necessarily work very well in emulators it's made for the demo that was done uh, and only that to so like don't don't go expecting it's not going to crash on you because it is a heavily modded 
uh, version of the game that has right. uh, like a very clear purpose in mind. Um, but it is super, super cool. So definitely check it out. Yep. Okay. That's all I have. Okay. All right. See ya. Bye, everyone. <laughs>